0: Well, a very Merry Christmas. Ahoy! And I was thinking, right before the big man centre comes and hopefully gives you your presents Christmas morning, why don't we have one quick spin around the solar system? This is the Fun Kids Science Weekly. My name's Dan. Thank you for being there. Thank you for listening, for sharing, for downloading. Uh, Every week we come together to talk about the most amazing things that are lurking in the universe. All those science secrets that are there, we shall uncover them. This week, we'll learn all about moving and shaking. Why you dance with science genius Dan Cameron. He's on because it's all about that bass.
1: Now we're interested in what it is about music that makes us want to move along to it. How is it that we can move our bodies so easily when we hear music?
0: Also, because it's Christmas, we'll learn how Father Christmas's sleigh flies all around the world, how he has to look at currents, slipstreams, and air, how it's all about aerodynamics.
2: When something like an aeroplane Or a sleigh moves through the air Every part of it generates drag This makes it harder for it to travel forward It's the job of designers, or in my case Elves, to make sure that the shape Of the vehicle generates as little drag As possible
0: And I've got your questions as always This week they are on clouds, why they float And how was TV invented We'll find out in a brand new Fun Kids Science Weekly Stay there We kick off your Fun Kids Science Weekly with your science in the news. Now, the most important European satellite of 2022 has gone into orbit, Meteosat-12, which is a really good sci-fi satellite name, isn't it? It blasted off from a spaceport in French Guyana to start a new era of weather forecasting. It will look at the Earth's atmosphere to predict weather better. Now, this is really important. We're going through a time of huge climate change. We've seen that here in the UK this year. And it's really good that we're constantly looking at ways that we can sort out the world and make people's lives easier. This satellite is a brilliant idea. Also staying in space, a helicopter on Mars is going to start flying over the hills up there to get a good look at the red planet. The Ingenuity drone is with NASA's Perseverance rover. We've spoken about this so many times on the show. I love it. It's on the floor of the Jezero crater and they're going to climb up out of this bowl. It's been there for quite a while. It's had to have a software upgrade to let it move up the hill. I love the fact that We're trying to find out what's happening on different planets. It's a brilliant idea. Hopefully we won't need to move somewhere else, but it's always good to have different options, isn't it, at the moment? And finally, a walrus found resting on a beach in England is extremely rare for the UK. Thor is what it's been nicknamed. It's a hefty mammal and and it was spotted on Calshot Beach uh, in the UK before swimming off. Experts think he's probably headed back to Arctic waters as it's very rare for a random walrus to be swimming around this country on its own. Well, we've had some amazing weather, a lot of snow over the last few weeks in this country. So it's nice to see this walrus wants to come and have a look at our stunning beach. Teaches. welcome along Thor. It's time to catch up with Curious Kate then. For the last few weeks we've been hanging around with Curious Kate. Guess what? She's very curious. She's been learning all about electricity and energy. I've loved hearing all the big questions that she asks about how things work. Now, this week, Kate and her brother Tom have to stop at a petrol station on their way to the toy shop. It's the electric pumps, though, that really interest Kate. How do they work with EVs?
3: Curious Kate, in association with British Gas Generation Green. my brother Tom to drive me into town. Can you believe it? We neither. We're off to buy a remote control car for our
4: cousin's birthday. Kate, we've just got to stop to get some petrol before we can head to the toy shop.
3: Oh no, I spoke too soon. Hey Tom, what's that strange looking pump over there? That's not a normal petrol pump, is it?
4: No, that's the one for a dual-mode car.
3: Is that where two cars battle and have a duel?
4: No, it's where you refuel a car that's powered by both petrol and another fuel, like gas. They're known as hybrid cars.
3: I think I've seen them on telly, but aren't they electric cars as well?
4: Some are, and those are the really clever ones. As well as taking a charge from a charging point, they can also generate their own electricity as they travel. Every time a car brakes, the brake pads create a lot of heat, which is just wasted. In an electric car, when the driver brakes, the car's electric motor puts it into reverse mode, causing it to run backwards and slow the car. But whilst running backwards, the motor also acts as an electric generator, producing electricity that's stored in large rechargeable batteries and released when needed. Clever stuff, huh? Wow.
3: Do you think our remote control car will have regenerative brakes? Um,
4: I very much doubt it. It will be a tad too small to fit in all the technology, and a bit too erratic as well. Will that stop starting? But that does remind me of another way that cars today save energy. More and more petrol cars have engines that will automatically shut off when you're stopped in traffic, saving fuel.
3: That's cool. I think your car must have had that given the number of times the engine switches off. Oi, Cheeky! That's just the age of my car.
4: <laughs> at uni, some of my friends are looking at a number of other ways to power cars, including using hydrogen gas. Whilst they prove the technology works... The fuel tanks needed to store the hydrogen take up a lot of space, and so there isn't much room for your luggage, let alone a remote-controlled car. But the technology is improving all the time. They're also trying to use renewable energy sources.
3: Renewable energy? I've had a great idea. What if cars ran off the sun? You could put solar panels all over a car, and then you wouldn't have to use petrol.
4: Well, some designers have built some solar cars. Well, they're more little racing cars than a family car. We you can speed along at 70 miles per hour. It'll still be a few years before my car is powered solely from an onboard solar array, but you never know. They can still help improve fuel economy by powering things like the air conditioning and the digital radio.
3: Talking about little racing cars, look, there's the toy shop. Park over there. Look there, next to the hybrid car. Curious Kate, in association with British Gas Generation Green. How curious are you? Test your curiosity at www.generationgreen.co.uk forward slash curiosity
0: Let's get to your science questions then It's my favourite part of every single week I'm almost more excited for this than I am for Christmas Day. You sent your questions to me. A few different ways. You can either fire them as a review over on Apple Podcasts. The best way, though, I love hearing your voice, is by leaving it as a voice note and firing it over on the Free Fun Kids app. And then I do all the digging. I turn into a a science superhero, if I can call myself that. And I do the digging to find your answer. First one this week is from Charlotte, who wants to know, how do clouds stay in the sky? This is amazing, Charlotte. Scientists have weighed clouds by flying through them, by using incredible lasers. And they found that they can weigh up to four tons, which is about the same size as two elephants. So it's amazing, isn't it, that they can stay up and keep floating. Surely you would think something that heavy would sink down to earth. It turns out there are a few reasons why they stay floating. Clouds are made of tiny bits of kind of frozen water. Now water is H2O, that's its chemical symbol, which means in a bit of water you have two hydrogen atoms and one oxygen atom bound together. Hydrogen is the lightest element on the periodic table, so it's lighter than almost everything else around it, all the other gases which help it stay floating. Also, although clouds are cold because the water, as I said, is a bit frozen, they're surrounded by warm pockets of air. We know that warm air rises because it's lighter than thicker, denser cold air. That helps lift it up. But the main reason is that things sink to the ground because the force gravity pulls them down to Earth. Now, the water droplets in the cloud are simply too small to be affected by gravity. They thicken up when they become rain and fall down to Earth. But when they're in a cloud, they're too small to really be affected by gravity. So they just stay in the air floating Charlotte thank you so much for the question. you can also ask me something by leaving it as a voice review on the free fun kids app just like this
1: Hello my name is Emile and I want to know how is TV curated
0: Thank you for this question Emile TV was invented in a few different ways like many inventions they grow on what's happened before. They rise on the stepping zones of smaller inventions before we get to the ones we have today. The first time we really saw... Well, a television like the ones that we have at the moment was back in 1927. An inventor from Scotland called John Logie Baird gave the first demonstration of true TV. He showed 50 scientists his projection of flickering images put together very, very quickly. Now, the main televisions that we have today can be traced back to a man in America called Philo Farnsworth. What a brilliant name. Philo Philo Farnsworth, maybe. Uh, the most amazing thing. He was just 21 years old. Believe this. He was out, because he was kind of a farmer, he was out tending to his vegetables when he was struck by an idea, some amazing inspiration. He figured out that a picture could be transmitted by being turned into lines of electricity. What a bit of inspiration to have when you're picking vegetables. Vegetables. These lines of electricity would then be fired into something called a cathode ray tube television receiver. It would take that electricity and it would put those lines back into a picture. And all this happens so quickly that your eyes kind of don't pay attention to the nanoseconds of stuff between the pictures. They simply merge all the images together into one continuous film or program when you're watching telly. So, Emil, we have two people to really thank for television. We have John Loki-Baird from Scotland and Philo, probably Philo Farnsworth from America. Thank you so much to them. And thank you to you for your question. If you've got something sciencey that you want answered next week on the show, be a star of the podcast, leave it for me as a voice note on the Free Fun Kids app. For this week's Dangerous Dan, where we have a look at some of the most mean, deadly, and cruel things in the universe, we're having a look at one of the most famous Christmas plants. Mistletoe is a parasite. It's a big, bushy mess of plants that attaches itself high up to trees. Its branches fork down, and it grows pairs of leathery leaves, which can have white berries. Now, a parasite is an organism that... Survives off another organism. It kind of saps away their energy. Mistletoe tends to grow on apple trees, uh, poplars, willows, oak trees as well. Now it looks very pretty, but it is dangerous. It has toxic compounds which can be extremely bad for humans and animals. But it's closely associated with Christmas, isn't it? This is because way back, ancient priests would use mistletoe in special ceremonies. They thought it had magical powers. These magical powers were believed to give love and help people get married, which is why, still today, in 2022, people might kiss under mistletoe around Christmas time. But that's as close as I would get to it. It is dangerous. The toxic compounds can make you feverish, can make you violently sick which means that even though it's a special Christmas tradition, mistletoe, the parasite, needs to go straight on our Dangerous Stand list. It's the Fun Kids Science Weekly. Now, it turns out, if you like music, you'll dance more when you hear lower, the bassier songs. Let's find out why with Daniel Cameron, who is a neuroscientist from McMaster University in Canada. Dan, thanks for being there. Thank you. It's great to be here so what made you want to look into this why research at what
1: point we start dancing to music it's a great question we're super interested in music and that's because it's a fundamental human thing our species human beings are really into music and dancing every culture in the world and throughout history has had music and dancing as, as part of it and those go together And we don't fully understand why this is, because it's not something that, you know, feeds us or shelters us or something that we very obviously need. So we're not sure why this, why we do this. So it's a really interesting human phenomenon. Now, we're interested in what it is about music that makes us want to move along to it. How is it that we can move our bodies so easily when we hear music? And we knew some things about this. So, for example, we know that music is really good at making you move along if it has a steady rhythm that gives you a clear sense of the beat. So something like jingle bells, jingle bells, jingle all the way has a steady beat at this pulse kind of thing. And you can tap your foot along to that. You can bob your head. You could do your favorite dance move. So the rhythm helps us move along to music. But we also knew that the bass in music is important for movement. And we, we knew this because people tell us they think this is the case. So people who like to go to electronic dance music concerts sometimes talk about how they can feel the bass in their body. They can feel it um, when they're dancing and when they're listening to the music and it feels good and it makes them want to dance. So we call that an anecdotal Bit of evidence. So it's something that someone has told us. We haven't tested it or shown with numbers that it's fully true, but people tell us that and we believe them. The other bit of evidence comes from different experiments that show that when you're moving to music or when you're moving along to sound, if the sounds are very low in frequency, bass sounds like that, very low, then people tend to synchronize their movements better. They time their movements more accurately to line up with those sounds compared to if the sounds are higher in pitch, that high end up here. So if the sounds are low in the bass range, our movement system in the brain is is better at timing those movements and figuring out when to move. So that was another bit of uh, a clue that told us that there's a relationship here, an association between bass and movement. So we wanted to do an experiment where we try to cause people to dance more, by adding more bass. This would show stronger evidence that there is this relationship and that there's a causal relationship that we can change people's behavior by changing the bass.
0: And how did you do the experiment? Is it as simple as chucking a lot of people in a room and playing something very loud and low and seeing what happens?
1: Not quite. I think if we just played something boring, loud and low, like a hum, like a very low tone that just droned on, who would want to dance to that? Who would want to move along to that? It's really boring. We wanted to get real music and real musicians playing it and get people who wanted to dance. We wanted it to be um, kind of natural, you know, a, a real world experiment in a way. So we work at a facility called the Live Lab, and this is an amazing place. It's a performance theater. So we have a concert series there. People can come in and do theater performances or dance or music, all kinds of things. But it's also a scientific laboratory so we can study people's brain waves when they're on stage or when they're in the audience. We can measure your heart, your heart rate and heart variability, or we can track your motion, your movement throughout the room using special infrared cameras. And that's a system called motion capture. And that's what we did here. So at the live lab, we put on this concert. We had a group called Orphix come in to perform and they're a fantastic uh, electronic music duo, very dancey music And we sold tickets and it was a normal concert. So the people that were coming to the concert loved this music. They wanted to dance. They were inclined to to come to a concert. They weren't necessarily intending to sign up for a scientific study. Now, when they arrived, we asked them, would you be willing to volunteer to participate in our research? You could be part of science and you could be part of supporting our uh, work in trying to understand how we move to music. And a lot of people said, yes, sign me up. All they had to do was fill out a little um, questionnaire about their background and their experience. And then they had to wear a special headband on their head. It's just a small thing. And on the top of it, there's a little reflective ball, a little ball that um, shines the infrared light from those special cameras around the room that I mentioned. It shines it back to the cameras so they can pick up on that and they can track that little ball as it's moving around. So we had about 135 people in the theater, all standing and dancing and moving around. And about half of them had these special markers on on top of their head. And we could track those people's movements very precisely using this motion capture system. Now, I was talking about bass before. That's the whole thing we're interested in, right? Whether bass can change people's movements So what we did was not just have a usual concert with speakers and everything, but we added something very special, some extra speakers that play super, super, super low bass, like really, really low frequencies, so low that generally you can't even hear it or you have to play it very, very loud uh, in order to hear it and feel it. It can shake your whole kind of body and you can feel it in the room. So we had these special speakers and we would turn them on and off during the concert. We would turn them on for, and leave them on for two and a half minutes. Then we'd turn them off, leave them off for two and a half minutes, then turn them back on and then off and on and off, etc. for the whole concert. Now, critically, when we turned them on, we only turned them on a little bit. We didn't want to make people kind of shaking and, and shaking the whole room and make them really loud and present. We wanted them to be very, very subtle, so subtle that you couldn't even tell that they were there. And that's what worked out. So people couldn't tell that the bass, this extra low bass was coming on, but it turns out that it changed their behavior. So when we looked at the motion capture data, how much people were moving by tracking those little headbands that were on their head, by tracking that movement, we could see that they moved more, about 12% more when these very, very low frequency speakers were on compared to off.
0: And half the time they weren't knowing that they were hearing these very, very, very low frequency sounds. So, so what's going on? Why is something in your brain making you move to noises that you don't even
1: know that you can hear? That's a great question, and we don't fully know. But it's important to think about what we do know about the brain. There's all kinds of things that our brain is doing without us knowing about it or thinking about it. If you think about it, when you're sleeping, you don't have to think about breathing, or you don't have to think about your heart continuing to pump. You can't even, you couldn't stop that if you wanted to. Your brain is making all kinds of things happen, even without your awareness. You are not consciously aware of different things that that our body does. So another example of this is when we move without kind of thinking about it. So if you bump into someone or something touches you and it surprises you, if you didn't know someone was there and they tap you on the shoulder, you might kind of jump. And often the feeling is you move even before you, you realize that you were touched. Your body picks up on that signal from your touch, something touching your skin before that signal gets to other regions of the, your brain that would make it kind of consciously detectable, to, that it would make you able to hear it or feel it rather. So in that situation, if someone just brushes up against you, you might move very quickly. And, and that's like an unconscious effect. Another example is our vestibular system, and that's our system of balance. So in our ear, we have these special structures that are made of bone, and they detect what position our head is in. So if we get a little off balance, we get a very quick signal from that system to our movement control system that makes our body change and makes us stand up straight and fixes our posture so that we're not off balance anymore. Now, I use those two examples because we think that those systems, the touch system and the balance system, that is the tactile and vestibular systems, are sensitive to these very low frequencies. We think that they, those systems were picking up on the low frequency sound, and they kind of have this very fast connection to our motor system, our movement control system in the brain. And that's how we can have this effect on our behavior without even our being aware of it. And we've still got no idea really why this
0: is necessary so most things humans do um uh, we we, because we we do them because we've evolved to do them because we need to make food or find shelter but we still don't really know why we dance
1: right we have ideas about this but it's a question that's very hard to prove you can't go back a million years and evolution and test different groups and, and manipulate their environments and this kind of thing But the main ideas around um, why we dance, why we have music even, is that it can make us feel better. It can make us feel better as a group and feel better about one another. And it makes us better able to modulate our feelings and our, our kind of excitement states. So a great example of this is that you find lullabies, people singing these soft, gentle songs to babies in every culture in the world. So this is a very functional use of music and movement because usually if you're singing to your baby, you're often, you know, rocking it along and you're singing slowly and gently in this particular way, you want your baby to fall asleep. The baby might be crying and crying at first and you sing and sing and bounce them along and that modulates their arousal, their kind of excitement state and we try to get them more calm so that they're fall, they will fall asleep. This is a good thing to do. This can help the baby, and the baby needs to sleep. It helps the parents. The ba- parents need the baby to sleep, so this is one functional use of, of of music. And another example is that we feel more bonded with one another, more connected with the people around us after we dance together and make music together too. So when we move together, especially if we're moving in synchrony, all kind of at the same time. And music is great for doing this. When we listen to music and bounce along at the beat, we're all moving at the same time. We know that people feel better about the other people around them who they've been moving together with. It's a socially bonding kind of experience. So that's a functional thing. In in terms of the evolutionary scale, it would be potentially adaptive to have an activity that makes the group of people living together feel better about one another and more comfortable with one another and trust each other more. So those are some of the main ideas around about why we have music and why we have dance. But these, it's it's very hard thing to, to test. And some people have done some really great work on it, but it's a hard thing to prove amazing
0: so if you want people to dance play something low uh daniel cameron thank you so much for joining us thank you for having me that was great now this episode of the fun kids science weekly is dropping for you on christmas eve this is my christmas present to you by the way hope you have a brilliant holiday Uh, so it makes sense to learn all about the science of christmas the secrets of the season We've been doing that for the last few weeks with episodes from our Santa Mori series. We've been looking all about how Father Christmas flies all around the world, how his sleigh has wings, what the reindeers do. But to get around every house across the world in one night, he has to be incredibly smart. He has to know all about aerodynamics, how gas and different forces can help and hinder the sleigh.
2: Santa Mori's
0: Science of
2: Christmas. Hello, Santa Mori here. You know, the one in charge of all the science and technology here at the North Pole. Now, I know many of you have seen images of Santa's sleigh. Some of you may have even had a go at designing your own version. But I'm going to let you in on some of the secrets. With his sleigh, Santa flies to every single house across the globe in a single night. That's got to be one pretty aerodynamic toboggan, right? Well, for many years it wasn't. The reindeer had to work extremely hard to pull the original clunky sleigh through the air. Then one day, some clever elves worked out that air resistance, or should I say drag, on the sleigh was pretty high. When something like an aeroplane, or a sleigh, moves through the air, every part of it generates drag. This makes it harder for it to travel forward. It's the job of designers, or in my case, elves, to make sure that the shape of the vehicle generates as little drag as possible. And luckily, elves are brilliant designers, and a good job too. The most aerodynamic shape in the world is a drop of rain when it's falling. The front is a very big semicircle and then it smoothly forms a point. You'll see the same type of shape on an aircraft wing. The front is a semicircle and then the wing tapers into a very aerodynamic form so the airflow nicely follows the shape. On the other hand, shapes that are jagged or non-streamline create a lot of drag since they cause the flow of air to change suddenly and make the air push up against the object. This is why airplanes and cars are often curved and smooth, not flat-fronted like a house because the less drag a vehicle creates, the less power you're going to need to move. Now, over the last year, the elves have been playing around with all of this to try and create a more modern design for Santa's sleigh. We experimented with teardrop shapes, creating a more smooth and sleek sleigh. that looks more like a sports car than a chair on skis. All those smooth lines eliminated 90% of the drag created by the old sleigh design, allowing air to flow more smoothly around. In fact, The new sleigh is so aerodynamically sound, it can handle supersonic speeds. We also thought of a covered cockpit, so that Santa doesn't get cold while travelling through the chilly stratosphere, as well as a stealth feature, ensuring that even the most eagle-eyed kids can't see him coming. But Santa didn't like any of these ideas. He's still quite attached to the old sleigh, so we've had a go at adapting it to help him get around a little quicker. But I'll tell you about that next time. Santa Mori's Science of Christmas, with support from the Institute of Physics, the Royal Aeronautical Society, and the Institution of Engineering and Technology.
0: Find out more at funkidslive.com/slash Christmas. And that is it for this week's Fun Kids Science Weekly. Thank you so much for listening. Have a very Merry Christmas. If you've got a question that you want answered on the show, make sure you leave it for me as a voice note on the free Fun Kids app. While you're there, you can hear so many of our other brilliant podcasts. We've got them on Google, Spotify, Apple, wherever you get your shows. They are also at funkidslive.com. Fun Kids, we are a children's radio station from the UK. You can listen all over the country on your DAB digital radio and at funkidslive.com. And if you're a Fun Kids podcast plus subscriber, you'll get it ad-free and unlock loads more bonus content too. Find out more at... All
3: right. um, It's got some amazingly pink and white flowers. The leaves look quite kind of, like, um, kind of furry, you know what I mean? It's a warm spring day in late March, and ever since the leaves have started to come out, Roby Joe has been wondering why some trees lose their leaves and some don't, and also, like, how the trees know when it's time to shed their leaves. To find out, join us on The Conversation's Curious Kids, wherever you get your podcasts.